hopefully. There we go. Talk to the recorders. Mayhem. Uh, so tonight, um, have an opportunity to talk to you all tonight. Uh, I have lots of opportunities to talk to you all, but not usually in this venue. Um, so try to, uh, I try to challenge myself a little bit, I guess, when I do these, because most of the time I'm doing some kind of historical book, and it's all very exciting, and I can tell some fun stories, and it's all very, uh, you know, dramatic, and you can tell jokes and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we have a good time and we learn some things, but I try to do some different types of uh, lessons, different types of study that maybe is a little bit different, and um, so it's just something else that I try to get a little bit better at. Anyhow, tonight I want to look at this idea of redefining God, and I appreciate uh, Everton taking the opportunity to, uh, to read from Deuteronomy chapter 4. I really think it's a really interesting passage. I mean, really, the book of Deuteronomy is a really interesting book to begin with. Um, and it's one that we don't study a whole lot. And there's a lot of good things in there that really pique my interest, and I'm sure they pique your interest from time to time. And just that passage in Deuteronomy 4, where Moses is speaking to the people right before they're about to enter into the Promised Land, just the idea that Moses is telling them, God is telling them, listen guys, God has given you a whole lot of stuff that makes a lot of sense. And what could you want more than this? I mean, other people are even going to look at you and they're going to say, man, these people, they're pretty smart people. They got a good God with them. And, you know, ultimately we see later in the history of, of the people that people are going to be looking at them. You know, we're talking about the divided kingdom right now. And, and the nation of Israel, of course, has gone off the deep end, so to speak. And even some of the nation of Israel has come back to Judah saying, you know, it's clear that these people know what they're doing. Uh, are, and are worshiping with, with them. We saw that with Asa. And so, you know, when we think about God and we think about God's commandments, uh, the Bible tells us, I mean, God, is, God knew what he was doing when he's putting this situation together. And so for us, it's kind of like, man, let's just do what God says to do. But one of the things that I think that we struggle with maybe if not you individually, and I tend to think that probably all of us in some way or fashion tends to struggle with this, but if if not as an individual, then certainly as a group and and certainly as a a body of people, um, just humanity in general, we have this temptation of redefining God. Um, And so tonight we want to look at what does that mean? Why do we redefine God? How do we redefine God? And what can we do about that? Um, so we want to start with some simple questions that I think that you should probably be able to answer. Like these are these are kind of like the questions in my Bible class where I'll throw them out there and then it's just total silence because everyone's probably like, "Well, that's such an easy question. I don't even want to say." Um, but so some questions that that probably you know the answers to um, that you don't have to say in this in this venue. But regardless, who is God? If you had to describe God, who is God? Um, is that what is the answer to that question? Uh, what does God want us to do? What does he want? Again, this is, this is like some very simple questions. Like as I'm saying these, I hope that you're thinking to yourself, well, okay, you know what, I, I can answer that question. Or, this is how I would answer that question. Uh, what, what doesn't he want? So what, what do we not, uh, what does he not want to see or uh, us to do or, or any of that thing? Um, and how does God feel about, you know, fill in the blank? You know, if I said, how does God feel about murder? Uh, I, I hope that you could probably say something about that. Or, how does God feel about, uh, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, anything, lying, um, worship. 
I hope that you could probably answer all these questions. And the question that I would pose, kind of like a sub-question to all these, is, well, how do you answer them? I'm not saying how do you answer them as, you know, okay, who is God? I'm not looking for you to answer who is God or, or what does God want, but how would you actually get the answer to that question? Is it something that you just know or you just, like, creatively come up with this answer or what do you do? I think all of us probably agree that the way that you answer these questions is you go to the truth of the Bible. And we're talking about this quarter, right, truth in the church, the, the need for truth in the church. Um, and so when we're looking for questions or answers to questions like this, I think we all can agree that we want to answer these questions. We go to the Bible and we find the truth within there and bam, there's the answer. So if I want to know, how does God feel about murder? Man, you could probably go book, chapter, verse, and not just in one place, but I'm sure in others, where you could see murder is not something God is really interested in seeing. Uh, or any uh, a whole host of other um, activities. Uh, on the other hand, there's probably lots of things that he does want to see. And again, we can go right into the Bible to see these types of things. But sometimes the questions that we have, or that are asked, or that are posed, are a little bit deeper than just like, you know, what does God think about murder? Um, and, and so sometimes we need to take the truth of the Bible and we need to apply a dangerous thing, and that is logic. Um, we need to try to use some logic and say, okay, God says this, God says this, God teaches that, the Bible says such and such, we see this example over here, and we need to try to like synthesize all this information together and then, you know, it's like, it's like a recipe, right? You take a little Galatians, you take a little First Corinthians, sprinkle in a Deuteronomy, pop it in the oven, 350 degrees, out pops the answer to your question. Um, or at least, hopefully, that is what it does. Uh, unfortunately, what happens when we tend to use logic? Well, we tend to make these logic, like what I would call like logical leaps. Where, you know, you're like, okay, I see this, I see this, and therefore all this, bam, this is my answer to the question. And unfortunately, the, the, the leap is not really founded on, on logic or on what God has actually said. And so what do we end up doing? Well, we end up kind of redefining God a little bit. We end up what God wants, who God is, we end up redefining that, or what he wants or what he doesn't want. And that can be a real uh, dangerous thing. So I was doing a little bit of research on the interwebs. And, you know, if you type in, like, redefining God, there's, like, lots of websites about this. And the, the funny part about it is when you talk about redefining God, how do you think that's kind of like, uh, what's the connotation of that? Oh, this is a great thing. You know, we all need to be progressive in our thinking. We need to think about what God wants and who is really God. You know, you really, you've probably read this book. It's like super old. And you, you may think you know what God is about, but in reality, you need to be thinking a little bit more differently. This is all this idea of progression toward enlightenment and you know, think outside the box. Don't think about what, you know, all these old people are telling us and all that kind of thing. All the fathers of the church, they're just trying to suppress you and all that type of business. Anyway, so we see that. But, you know, this whole idea of logical leaps, I hope that we can see that that's not really something that is uh, far-fetched. So, of course, in, in my uh, preparation, I, I, I thought, well, I could throw some humor into the situation. And so I, thought, I found some, some, I think, logical leaps that um, some of us may agree with and some may not. Um, so, for example, one of them was, well, school 
Okay? Think about what you think about school. School requires textbooks. Okay? That's, that's a fair assessment. I think we can agree that's true. Textbooks requires paper. Okay? Everyone with me? Paper requires trees. Okay? Trees produce oxygen. Oxygen is required for us to live. And therefore, putting this all together, school is killing us. It's taking away our oxygen. We better shut these bad boys down right now. Tom agrees. Uh, <laughs> Everton as well. Uh, no, I'm sure there's others that, you know, um, but anyhow. So we can think of these. I, I read another one that was pretty humorous, right? And, and, and when we think about that, it's like, wow, that's like airtight logic, right? I mean, school does require that. I mean, that requires you know, and, and so it seems kind of logical, I guess. Uh, another one that I read that was pretty funny was a woman is driving to school for her son's show and tell. And she's got the son's uh, pet gerbil in a box in her car. So she's driving to school and she's got the pet gerbil in her car. All of a sudden, you know, she hits a bump or whatever, the gerbil pops out of the, of the uh, trap or the, uh, the box or whatever, the cage. And it's escaped. And it, so it's, it jumps into the woman's dress, okay? <laughs> so she is upset and screaming, right? So she pulls the car over to the side of the road and starts jumping around, like trying to get this gerbil out of her dress or whatever. Passerby sees her, thinks she's having a seizure. So, he's, so he tries to, like, corral her and, and stop her from jumping around. Another passerby comes, thinks the second guy is assaulting her, punches him in the face. And so we can easily see, like, this is crazy, right? You know, step by step. Well, yeah, I see how that guy made that logical deduction, yet that wasn't all too logical. And that's the kind of thing that we need to be careful about. And that's what we're going to be talking about. These logical leaps that we can make that often leave us far from where the Bible would want us to be. Um, so just some thoughts that I, I wanted to share with you. My, I remind also of Michael's story about the chopping off of the, the roast and all that. Same type of thing, you know. We're just missing a little information there. And, and so we, we make some assumptions. Anyhow, I want you to consider uh, Jeroboam, right? So this is a story that we've talked about uh, quite a lot recently in the upstairs class on Sundays. And I just want you, I want you to remind you of what this dude did. He's a pretty smart guy, this guy. And that wasn't a good guy, but he's a smart guy. First Kings chapter 12, I want you to remember a passage starting in verse 25. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now, the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the Lord of this pe- uh, the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted, made two golden calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places, and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah, and he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. 
Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. So we look at a guy like this, and, and the obvious question is, right, how did he redefine God? Well, I think that we can all see, like, he clearly made some very large steps to do that. Uh, you know, God had defined what he wanted, the worship that he wanted, the way he wanted in, in, in which he was to be worshipped. Uh, and Jeroboam kind of, like, took that and made some kind of weaved, uh, real different story of who God was and what they were supposed to do. Uh, God, he set up and said, uh, here's some golden calves. Hey, guys, this is God. I mean, physically, he said, this is God right here. This is your God, uh, this, this golden structure here. Um, he took away the priests that were supposed to be priests and made priests from everybody else that was not supposed to be priests. He made a feast that was kind of like the way that, you know, they were supposed to worship, but in reality... It wasn't the same thing. It was similar, but not quite the same thing. So, yeah, I mean, we look at Jeroboam, and I think we could say, like, this is a guy who took it to an extreme, right? He redefined God on, like, a level that all of us probably look at, and we're like, I would never do that. I'm not making no idols or any of that other stuff. But I think that we need to really be careful and really be mindful and thoughtful of if we are guilty of doing something that is similar um, are we maybe not saying, oh, here's my God, this golden calf, but maybe there's something else that we're doing to kind of retool a little bit how we think of God, or what we think God wants, or how God uh, thinks of things. Maybe we do some of these things. Uh, the question is, well, why do we do this? What are the dangers of redefining God? And do we do it subconsciously? Do we do it willfully? Do we do it unintentionally? Maybe we do all of the above at different times. Um, there's a lot of questions that comes about from this whole idea of, of what does it mean to redefine God and, and if we're doing it or not. So I want to start with this the very simple question of, well, why do we do this? So let's think about why would anybody want to redefine God, what he wants, what he doesn't want, all that type of business. So we'll start here. So, let's kind of take a case, case study of that situation. And let's use just yourself here, because that's the easiest one. Consider why you're here tonight. Okay, so hopefully you have some answer to that. I don't want you to tell me your answer, but hopefully you have some answer to that. Why are you here tonight? I hope, that I hope I'm making an assumption here, so I could be wrong about this. But I hope that on some level, the reason that you're here tonight is you want God's approval. That you want God to approve of what you're doing. That you think that this is what God wants, and as a result, here you are. And I'm sure there's, and I'm simplifying this obviously, you know, there's obviously a lot of other emotions and feelings and reasons that we do, that we do this, but kind of boil it down, we're doing this for God. We want God to approve of us. And the reason that we want God to approve of us is because we value how God looks at us. You value God's view of you. You don't want God to look at you and say, oh, that, that Joe, I mean, he, is, he, is, he is bad. Uh, or, you know, whatever, right? We want God to look at us and say, yeah, the guy's, that guy's doing good. Uh, we, we value God's approval. And on the other hand, so that's, that's on this side, let's say. On the other hand, we struggle with a lot of worldly desires. So, like, for example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, tells us those if you want to call them the, the three types of sins, right? 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so, you know, people say, well, you can categorize basically any sin under one of those three categories. That very well be true. I don't really know. But while we want God's approval, we also struggle with these worldly desires, these things that we want, these things that we crave, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, fill in the blank for what those things are. And so while we feel like we want to have God's approval, that is, our, that is valuable to us, we also have in the back of our minds, I want to give up as little of this physical stuff as I can to still retain the feeling that God approves of me. So hopefully, if that doesn't make sense, it will make sense in a little while. So once we arrive at that conclusion, right, once we say, okay, I want God to approve of me, yet I want to keep all my stuff, i got to somehow rationalize what am I going to do from this point on. And so that's where we go down radical. That's where we start rationalizing. That's where we start redefining. That's where we start taking these logical leaps, so to speak, to redefine who God is, what he wants. And maybe that just might be very slightly. Maybe that just might be just, just a little bit to, to you know, get you this, this little bit of stuff that you're really wanting. And you know, there's, there's some dangers with that. So the question, of course, that we're going to be looking at tonight are what are the dangers of redefining God? Redefining who he is, what he wants, and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to look at three dangers tonight of, of redefining God. So the first danger that we want to look at is that replacing God's wisdom with man's wisdom can lead to some very poor decisions. So I want to start off, and trust me, this is not meant to be like super long, so don't worry, we're not going to be here all night. I want to start off at the very beginning. I want you to think about Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. I'll throw a little plug in for Wes, because I know he's doing such a good job on Wednesdays. He just talked about the Proverbs for a little while, and some other wisdom literature. And, you know, we really see the value of God's wisdom against man's wisdom. But I want you to think about, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. Of course, we know, right, what they were supposed to, well, not do. What they were not supposed to do, let's put it that way. They're not supposed to go to that tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're not supposed to eat of the fruit. And for God had said, if they do this, they would die. And when we know, we start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, right? The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to him, And you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so you look at this situation, try to put yourself maybe in the position of, of Eve and Adam, I guess, later on. And you've got to think about, well, what motivated this individual to do this? Why did they do this? Did she know what God wanted? Clearly knew, right? Clear. I mean, she even recited it, right? 
God said, you shall not eat of it or touch it or you will die. But what happened? Well, she wanted this approval from God, but she, on the other hand, saw all that temptation that this fruit was providing, and she apparently recognized or believed that, well, what this serpent is telling me is better than what God has told me. And so she obviously made the decision that she did, and you know the rest of the story. So the, the, the thing that we need to think about here, I think, is Sometimes we're going to be in a position where God is going to have told us something. Bam, here it is. Do not do this or do this. This is wise. This is foolish. And we're going to want to go towards this side of things. In other words, we're going to want that sinful, foolish, whatever it is thing for whatever reason it is. And we're going to know that God said what he said about it. And yet, what are we going to do? We're going to rationalize somehow, find some wisdom within our own minds, or some other person, that in fact, even though God said this, this is better. And we need to trust in God's instruction instead of doing that. So Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Wes has mentioned this one before many times. And uh, it's a good verse because it pretty much tells you exactly the point. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Why is that? Well, it's because we tend to make logical conclusions that are not exactly what God would want us to do. So, a phrase that we hear people say when they do this kind of redefining. I know the Bible says dot, 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 but dot, dot, dot. And you hear this in lots of different applications, right? I'm going to throw some, a few out for you, right? How about fornication? I know the Bible says that fornication is wrong. But, you know, we live in a different time. And you just can't do it, you know. I got needs. Or whatever. Uh, or throw some other ones out there, right? Like uh, marriage. Um, you know, I know the Bible says that, he, that God hates divorce. But, like, I just don't like this guy, man. He's a slob. He doesn't take care of the house. I just don't like him anymore, you know. People weren't designed for this anyway. I mean, people back then, they lived for 30 years, then they were dead, you know. Now I live for so much longer. How am I supposed to do that? Um, you know, and we go down all this, this road and we come down with all this, these ideas that we think are just so smart and so uh, uh, enlightened, so to speak. And what do we do? Well, we say, well, I, I know God has told me this, but, you know, for the moment I'm going to close my eyes and I'll do something totally different. Um, and we really rationalize our disobedience in these very, very creative ways. Man is the eternally creative being. Um, coming up with all types of, of things. And ultimately, what happens? Well, you know, when you tell yourself all this kind of stuff, and, and, you know, well, this is the reason I do this, you ultimately conclude, hey, I think God would even agree with me. God is smart. God is a wise being. Certainly, God would even agree that, you know what, times are changing. And so i got to change a little bit. God's got to change a little bit. And so, you know, we're just going to do things a little bit differently. And I think God would understand that. And that's just a very dangerous thing to do. Once we start to use that phrase and start to go down that road, uh, what are we doing? Well, we've decided that God is not really good enough. And our God is going to be me. Because after all, I'm telling God what he should be. Uh, I know God says this, but, you know, I think this. And thus, God must also think that. Uh, Really just a dangerous thing for us to do. 
And while this may sound very cerebral, uh, it's really not. We do this type of stuff all the time. Rationalize doing wrong, rationalize doing the wrong thing, because even though we know what God has said, we think that we know better. And God has told us that that is just not the way to do it. We've ceased following God, and we've started to follow ourselves. So if that's not circular reasoning, I don't know what is. So, not too good. Second danger that we want to talk about is that we give ourselves a path to stray further and further and further away from the truth. I want you to think about Solomon. I love these kings because they have all these great, uh, unfortunate mistakes that they make, and so we can just take them and say, well, you know, hopefully we'll do better. When we look at Solomon, right, and this is a smart dude, right? I don't think anybody looks at Solomon and is like, man, that guy, you know, he's a little questionable. Um, this was a, a very wise individual, very smart individual. And I want you to, to, to look at the end of chapter 2, of 1 Kings chapter 2. This is like after Solomon has basically established himself as the king, right? He's killed all these dudes that have, you know, really been a thorn in the side of David, uh, whether figuratively or not. And the last phrase in chapter 2 is, Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. So I think that's really interesting, right? So now the, he is the king. He is the man. After he did all this stuff. And so the first thing Solomon's going to do, bam, chapter 3, verse 1, then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Great plan. Uh, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. We look at a guy here, right? Very smart. He's, you know, he's later going to receive the wisdom from God. And, like, the first thing we see him do after he establishes the kingdom is, man, I'm going to make a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. I'm going to take his daughter up here. That's a good idea. And so I don't know how he figured that out, right? I have no idea how he thought to himself, like, this is a good plan. This is what we want to do. But, unfortunately, counter to what God had told these people, you know, in the past, how many times... uh, more times than I can count at this point in time. Don't do this. It will be bad. Your heart will be you know, led astray. You will start to serve all these other gods, and then I'll have to destroy you. Um, basically, God told them. When we get to chapter 11, just a short period later, what do we see with Solomon doing? Well, seeing Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will surely turn your heart away after these gods. And Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. I, I want you to just think about this for a second, right? You don't get to 700 wives, and I- I- I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? Let's say not all of them were foreign women. Let's just say some of them were. You don't get to 700 wives, or even 100 wives, or whatever, until you get one, right? You start with one. And then it goes to two. And then it goes to three. And then somehow you get to 700, but, you know, that's beyond me. But the, the, the point of the matter is, once we start redefining God a little bit, what happens? Well, the door is open now. Now I'll redefine him a little bit more. A little bit more. Change a little bit more. Change a little bit more. Until we really, really gone super far away from what God has wanted us to do. Once we've given ourselves a pass on following one part of God's commandment, how difficult is it to go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one? Um, I've read a lot about addiction. 
And addiction is kind of like this. And, you know, those that, that have had addiction problems, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here. Addiction is a, a kind of a really scary thing. And in order to kind of stay away from going down that rabbit hole, so to speak, you've got to stop yourself from making that first mistake. Once you make that first mistake, it's all over, baby. You're, you're back down that road. And so, kind of like that, is this. Where we have to be so careful that we do exactly what God has said. Not turning to the left, not turning to the right, but stay right on the path, lest what happened. Well, once you start turning to the left, well, well, I'm already off the path a little bit. I guess, what's another ten feet? I mean, who really cares at this point? You know, and that's what happens to us. We've got to recognize that there is this barrier, mental barrier that's up while we have not yet gone off what God has done. And once we start to break off the road, the barrier is down. And now the world is your oyster. Uh, or maybe you're the world's oyster. One of the two. And it becomes very, very difficult to get back on the path. The further we stray, the further we get away from what God has told us to do, the more difficult it becomes to return. I put a couple of uh, passages on there that you might want to take a look at. Hebrews chapter 10. For if we, uh, verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. I don't know if you ever thought about that this in this way. But once you know what you're supposed to do, and you decide, hey, I'm not going to do that. What's, what's left? The blood of Jesus ain't going to save you. There's nothing left for you but judgment. The fury of fire, which is going to consume adversaries. Second Peter chapter 2. Kind of a similar uh, concept here. For if, after they have escaped, This is verse 20. The defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy command handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Once you've decided that you want to go back to the vomit, once you're off the path, what is going to convince you to come back? That's a very hard thing to come back from. And we see that in the Bible, and I'm sure you've seen it in the people around you, where people just start to stray a little bit, and then it's like they hit a certain point and right off the cliff. Ultimately, the exception that you made becomes the rule. You might say, oh, I'm not going to do this one, I know, I'm going to just kind of bypass this one little law, but ultimately what happens? You bypass everything. That can be a very dangerous thing to do as we uh, redefine God and what He wants. The final thing that we want to just quickly touch on is that we delude ourselves by the end of this whole process. We delude ourselves into believing we're still following God even though we're actually serving an idol. That's the scariest part to me. That you could actually believe, that you could actually feel, 
that yes, I am a good person. I am doing the right thing. I am following God. And then one day you get to judgment and God's like, bro, you had it all wrong. That, I mean, I don't know if that scares you. But it kind of scares me that you know, that could be some of us. That we have kind of fallen into this when we start to redefine who God is and what he wants. Consider Paul's warning, Romans chapter 1. I think we read this passage a lot, for good reason. I want you to just consider the words that Paul has written here. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their futile heart, was, or foolish heart, was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of incorruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurities, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I want you to just think about this passage. The whole concept is, you know, you've got people who, they don't really want God. They, they, they see God, they know God, they see what God is, is telling them. Verse 19, it's evident to them. God even made it evident to them. And yet, what have they done? They've decided, well, we're going to do a little different, we're going to change it up. And ultimately, verse 22, 23, they think they're wise, they're foolish, and they exchange the glory of God for something else. That's not God. And so, that's the same thing that we can do. Mentally, we can transform God from what He is into what He is not. Here's, a, here's how we do that. Or at least here's, here's an example of that. Some people say this. Well, if I were God... This is what I think. This is what I would do. And then what's the, the logical leap that takes place from there? Well, since I think that, God must also think that. And so, you know, whatever it is that we mentally think, well, you know, if I were God, I think that, you know, this is really what, what I would want. Or if I were God, well, this is really what I would want. Or I really wouldn't want that, you know. I mean, that doesn't seem like what, really what I would want. And we can convince ourselves that God is somebody totally different than who he really is. And then by the time all this is done, guess what's happening? Well, we're not really serving God anymore. And like, like Paul talks about here, we're not really serving God. We're not uh, taking the truth of God. We're not worshiping the Creator, but who are we worshiping? Whatever we want. Whatever I feel. Whatever I think. Kind of like what we said before. And the scary part about this whole situation is, 
You know, we talk about wanting the approval of God and feeling like, oh, we have God's approval. You do this, and you feel like God's approving you. You feel like you've got the approval of God, and you are actually doing the right thing until it's just too late. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then it goes on, being filled with all unrighteousness and all these other things. I I think that we all can see that that's a dangerous thing. That God would allow us to get to the point where we are so deluded, so overcome with the things that we have told ourselves, and blinded to what God has revealed to us, that we don't even notice it anymore. That we have just become totally enveloped in our own thoughts, in our own minds, and doing whatever it is that we want to do. You know, we talked about this morning how chaotic the Israelite nation was, especially the, the northern kingdom, like bananas. Um, you know, people killing people, and it's just like, uh, you know, we said it's like the young and the restless and the murderers, uh, just killing everybody. And, you know, someone made the comment, which is absolutely right. This reminds you a lot of the judge's time period. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Instead, what? Every man did what was right his own eyes. And that's where you see that kingdom fall, and that's where we can fall. When we, have, when we believe that we ourselves are so much smarter, or so much wiser, and we make some little tweaks to God. We say, well, God, you know, you, it's kind of like a little plastic surgery. I'm going to give you a little facelift, you know. Um, and when we start to do that, we really set ourselves up for these dangers that ultimately can be spiritually disastrous for us. So just some closing thoughts, real quick. Do we, def- do we redefine God? Well, sometimes we do. How do we do that? Do we do that willfully? Do we do that subconsciously? You know, based on the things that we want, and we just kind of are overcome by that sometimes. Unintentionally? All the above. I think probably at different points in your life, probably each one of those is accurate. You know, probably at some point in your life, you're like, well, I know God says this, but I'm going to do this instead. Uh, or, you know, God says that, but, you know, I think he's off, the, he's off the wall on that one. I'm just going to do it my own way. Probably we do these types of things at different times, and, and we end up making God into an idol, uh, an object made of, uh, you know, neurons and synapses and whatever we think that God should be. And, of course, that's not the God that we ought to serve. So what's the remedy? Fortunately, you know, we talk a lot about the dangers. This is like, you know, WebMD, where it's like this much, uh, like, this could be wrong, and this is what you're going to see, and la di da di da But then it's like the remedy at the end, rest. Well, okay, great. Uh, <laughs> um, the remedy for this situation is very easy. Go back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? You know, when you're, when you're thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, this, this makes sense. Is that God what God would really want? You know, nine times out of ten, you go to the Bible and it says, oh, oh, you know what, that's actually what he wants. That's what he said. You know? And so we need to think about that, that when we are in these situations where we're tempted to maybe redefine God, or we're tempted to take a logical leap, or we're tempted to kind of rationalize away some part of our obedience, let's say, that maybe is not um, advisable, let's say. Turn to the Bible. Go back to the Bible. See what God has told you directly what you're supposed to do, who he is, and what he wants. And ultimately, that's, that's what he wants us to do. Go back to the truth of the Bible. That's what we need. 
So I appreciate your attention tonight. Uh, nobody fell asleep. That's always a good thing. I always say that, but you never know. Um, tonight, you know, I, I don't know where everybody is tonight. You know, maybe tonight you're, uh, you're thinking to yourself, you're, you've really gone off the deep end, so to speak. Maybe you've already taken some steps towards falling off the edge. Uh, maybe you've redefined God in some way or fashion, and you realize that's not really such a great idea. And you need some strength, you need some help, uh, you need some prayers. And certainly, I think all of us are here for you uh, tonight. Or maybe you're not even a Christian yet. Maybe you need uh, our help and you want to become a Christian. Certainly, we can do that as well. Whatever you need tonight, certainly we're all here ready to help. Uh, and we stand waiting to do that as we together stand and sing.